Welcome to the INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. The Infusion Nurses Society is recognized as the global authority in infusion therapy and is devoted to setting the standard for infusion care. I'm Dawn Berendt, your podcast host and the Clinical Education and Publications Manager for INS. On today's INS Infusion Room, I have two excellent guests that you're going to really enjoy. My first guest is Dr. Sarah Wester. She's talking with me today about thyroid eye disease and a new infusion therapy that was recently FDA approved to treat this disease. And Dr. Wester is so passionate about this disease, this condition, and all of the therapies that are available. You are really going to want to stay tuned and listen to her discussion. I also had the privilege of talking with Mary Alexander, the Chief Executive Officer for INS for this podcast, and Mary has shared some important information for our members regarding INS member recognition and scholarship programs, some upcoming opportunities for INS membership involvement, and certainly we needed to talk about INS 2020 Annual Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada. We are starting off the show with Dr. Sarah Wester right after the break. Horizon Therapeutics is a biopharmaceutical company that is driven to deliver breakthrough medicines to patients because Horizon understands the challenges they face. Okay, we're back. I am really excited about this next section of our podcast. Today, I have Dr. Sarah Wester with me, and she's going to be talking about thyroid eye disease And I would like to welcome her to our program today. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask that you tell us a little about yourself, a lot about your practice, and what you do. Great. Well, thanks for having me here. I'm really excited to talk about thyroid eye disease. It's my research and clinical area of interest. So I'm excited for more awareness um, for patients and practitioners um, for this disease. So I have been here at Baskin Palmer since 2005. I did my residency here and then I did a fellowship, um, an ASOPERS accredited fellowship here at Baskin Palmer and have been here since. I've been on faculty since then. And one of my main interests early on became thyroid eye disease for a number of reasons. I actually went into ophthalmology because I have a family member with a retinal disease called retinitis pigmentosa. And then during my uh, period of residency, I really became very interested in orbital disease, orbital surgery, and periocular disease. And that's kind of what led me into oculoplastic surgery. Uh, early on in my practice, after finishing fellowship, I had several patients, several young women actually, with quite severe thyroid eye disease. And it really started stimulating me to think about ways that we can improve treatment and get more involved in kind of management 
uh, both from the clinical side as well as research. And I do research um, in the laboratory in collaboration with uh, various PhDs looking at some of the treatment options, some of the alterations that we see in the orbital tissue of these patients because of that. And I have grown my thyroid practice significantly um, because of that as well, because I really feel like these patients are often not recognized early enough and not managed, in my opinion, aggressively enough early in the active phase of disease. And I think it's not only a physically altering disease, but very, uh, very significant effect emotionally. And there have been good um, studies looking at quality of life that that are similar in these in some of these patients to patients that have cancer, and it really is a very life altering disease. So that's really what led me to get more interested in treating it. I, I, you know, ultimately back to my aunt with retinitis pigmentosa, I came into ophthalmology really just to help patients uh, with vision. And this is just an area where I think we have tremendous opportunity now, but tremendous work to to be done. When I started, you know, ten years ago. Excellent. So let's jump right in. Let's talk about thyroid eye disease. Now we have seen some of the photos that are out there and it's um, very impactful to see what you said, the, the physical alteration. I can't imagine what the psychosocial impact of this is. I would like you to tell us exactly what is thyroid eye disease and whom does it affect? So thyroid eye disease, if you think about the orbit as another site for the antibodies to attack when they also attack the thyroid, that's really a good way to think about thyroid eye mm -hmm. disease. So when we develop systemic Graves disease, there's an antibody attack on the thyroid gland. And those same antibodies and a variety of other antibodies, um, as we can talk about later, also cross-reacts with the orbital tissue and the orbital fibroblasts. And, and behind the eye, so the eye sits in this orbit, and the orbit is a um, confined cavity. Bone doesn't really expand, as you can imagine. And so it's almost like an ice cream cone. It's this, um, this conical-shaped structure, which doesn't have much room for expansion. So if you imagine the tissue behind the eye, which is fat, muscles, and then there's important things like nerves and blood vessels behind there as well, if that fat and if the fat and muscles expand, it can lead to a variety of things. It can lead to the eye going forward, which we know is proptosis, and that's when people look like their eyes are bulging, mm -hmm. which can be not only cosmetically have an effect on patients, but also very functionally significant functional consequences. And that can be because it presses on the nerve, the optic nerve, which is really the telephone cord that serves all of our vision. So any compression on that optic nerve can lead to vision loss and in severe cases, blindness. It can affect the movement of the eye because if the muscles get thick, they don't work quite as well. And they can also compress on that optic nerve. And then if it's more of kind of just fat expansion, it pushes the eye forward. And sometimes it's forward so far that it's high, hard for those eyelids to close and cover the cornea and the cornea dries out. And again, it, it's not only the aesthetic, but the functional consequences aesthetically, you know, if your eyes are, are bulging forward like that in a significant way, it can be very, very difficult for patients. And also, again, the cornea and, and the vision loss associated with it. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of the progressive phases of disease. It can also affect, affect the eyelid muscle. So the eyelid, the upper eyelid and the lower eyelid can pull up and down respectively leading to more exposure of the center part, the cornea of the eye. So the eye looks even bigger than it is. 
And when this is asymmetric, meaning one side's different from the other, it's particularly bothersome to patients, right? Because people mm-hmm. say, what's wrong with your eye? Um, what's going on with your eye? And it can be, again, uncomfortable because the eyes get quite dry when they don't have the lid in the right position. The eyelid is really important to open so we can see, but also to close to keep the cornea well lubricated and protected. And so when that's not functioning normally, that can have significant consequences as well. In terms of who it affects, it can affect, you know, up to 50% of patients with Graves' disease can get thyroid eye disease. A small percentage of those get severe disease. Around 5% get severe disease, which can lead to vision loss, blindness, um, you know, severe double vision, things like that. And if you can imagine in that subcategory, that is quite significant. They also need surgery, IV infusions. And sometimes never really get back to exactly how they were. I mean, we try to do, as surgeons, we do a lot that really helps improve their status and gets them back pretty close to where they were. But it's quite a lot to go through. And the diplopia, which is double vision, is one of the most disabling things. If you imagine, back to you know what first got me interested, a young woman who had two young children who couldn't drive to the visits because she has severe diplopia. So, you know, imagine being a woman, a mother, a working mother of two and not being able to drive, not Mm. being able to function. It's really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the risk factors for thyroid eye disease and a little bit more about the incidence. So the incidence varies between men and women. It's more common in women than men, but it's really not very common, actually. The main risk factors for thyroid eye disease, there are some that we can modify and some that we can't. There seems, there's known to be kind of a positive family um, history can predispose you to developing thyroid eye disease. It's more common in patients that have it. But the number one thing we can control is smoking. So smokers have a Mm -hmm. seven to eight time increased risk of thyroid eye disease. And so that's the one thing we really can control. And we always want to counsel patients on the risk of that. In terms of other things, we know that if your thyroid function is not stable, meaning if you're low or high, that you are more likely to have worse eye disease. And so it's really important. I always work very closely with the endocrinologist to make sure we can get these patients to use thyroid. Not that that necessarily will treat it, but we know that those alterations, if it's if you're hypothyroid, you can have worsening of the eye disease. So we really want patients to be euthyroid to help manage that as well. There are studies that suggest vitamin D, low vitamin D and low selenium also increase your risk for worse thyroid eye disease. So those are other things that we like to check and then supplement as needed. Very good. Very good. And I will mention one thing. So you know, I said it's more common in women than men. Men often have worse disease mm. um, depending on certain, um, you know, ethnic predispositions. Okay. Okay. Dr. Wester, tell us about the typical subtypes of this disease and the surgeries that might be helpful. Great. So as we know, this is a very heterogeneous disease. And if you look Across the board, you'll see the patients that you could probably recognize because the eyes are bulging and they have a very classic pattern and classic appearance of disease. And then others who are often missed. And I have a variety of patients who have come in, some of whom have been followed by endocrinologists or ophthalmologists and are told they have allergic conjunctivitis or that they have just simply dry eyes. And in fact, they actually have compressive optic neuropathy, meaning 
that the muscles have enlarged and are compressing the optic nerve. And so it's, it's hard in many cases to really see these patients as one and the same because it's very heterogeneous. And there are subtypes that some people classify. Some of us think that, you know, it's really a spectrum where you have type one, which is more of the fat expansion. And we see more of the fat expand behind the eye. And those classically get more bulging, but less risk of that compression of the optic nerve. And then type two, and these, again, these are not set in stone. I really believe it's a spectrum. But the type 2 patients where you get more enlargement of the extracular muscles, and as you can imagine, that pressure on the optic nerve can create more risk for compressive optic neuropathy. In general, I think it's important to realize that the eye bulging sometimes actually causes vision loss and can be quite significant. And in some cases, it helps kind of protect that optic nerve because if you imagine back to that ice cream cone structure, if the eye doesn't move forward and the muscles get really big, there's not much space for the important structures, the nerves back there. So in those cases, you can have an increased risk of compressive optic neuropathy. So I think it's important to realize these patients present very, very differently. And so I do believe that it's important for patients to see someone who's really familiar with the disease, heterogeneity, comfortable with treating the variety of disease processes to, to better delineate what is going on with them. And I think it's important to treat patients in the active phase of disease. So Mm -hmm. speaking kind of about progression, you know, typically we start, we have an active phase, which can be anywhere from 18 months to three years, sometimes, you know, quicker, sometimes it can be even longer. And that's known as Rundle's curve, which there's a good article that discusses that. And during that active phase, everything's kind of expanding, okay? And we have active inflammation, and that's really when we want to treat the disease because when it enters the fibrotic phase, it's harder to treat, right? Things have fibrosed, and they're less susceptible to some of the treatments that we talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And once it enters that fibrotic stage, typically the teaching was, you know, we wait until they're in that fibrotic stage, and then we proceed with rehabilitation surgery, which involves decompression surgery, strabismus surgery, eyelid surgery. The truth is often in the acute setting, we might treat patients that have compressive optic We will treat them much earlier with decompression surgery to help relieve that optic nerve and to hopefully help some of the congestive process of the disease because the blood vessels can't drain as well when there's so much pressure behind there. We believe that, you know, releasing some of that can be helpful in the progression. So, it's, you know, it depends on the underlying process. If someone has just the bulging, but no compression, not much inflammation, those patients are treated really differently than someone that has significant inflammation early on. And so I think with progression of disease, again, it goes to not every patient is the same. And, and really, we have to treat each patient individually, I believe, to minimize the long-term damage. You know, we really don't want to have long-term issues with double vision, vision loss. And I think in this day and age, we're, you know, hopefully way beyond that in most cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've noted some surgeries that may be able to help the patients. Are there other treatments that are available as well? So there are a lot of treatments, none of which is FDA approved. Uh, We have used a variety of treatments in management of thyroid disease. A lot of us use what's called the Kahali program uh, protocol, which is named after George Kahali, who treats a lot of patients with thyroid eye disease. And it's an IV steroid regimen. 
He did a variety of studies showing benefit to IV over oral steroids in these patients in terms of long-term success as well as less risk of side effects or lower side effects. But we all know that steroids is kind of a big gun that's just treating inflammation overall and not really targeting the underlying disease process. And as such, it's not that surprising that we see significant relapse rate as well as a variety of patients that don't respond how we would like, whether we do IV or oral steroids. Other options are radiotherapy. This is typically used more in patients that have diplopia as the main presenting finding or are not candidates for other therapy. There are some that really believe radiation is helpful in managing long-term inflammatory processes and even before surgical interventions recommend radiation. I think this is something that there's a lot of varieties of opinions about, but I do have, I have had success in a variety of patients treating them with radiotherapy and it's a very low dose of radiation. So the risks are much, much lower in terms of some of the things that we see for other diseases. Mm-hmm. Other treatments that are used, tazolizumab or tuximab, are two other therapies. Rituximab has kind of conflicting data, but some have seen success. You do have to be careful in patients that have a risk for compression. There have been some cases where they can flare up. And tazolizumab was, there was recently a randomized controlled trial looking at tazolizumab and steroid failure patients. And some people are doing not only the infusions, but subcutaneous with some significant benefits. So we have been really lucky to be part of the phase three study looking at Tepertumumab, which is an anti-IGF-1 receptor inhibitor. It's a monoclonal antibody to the IGF-1 receptor. And looking at that for um, patients with thyroid-associated orbitopathy, that's an infusion therapy that's every three weeks for eight infusions. The phase two data you have probably already seen showed significant benefit over placebo. And this is really the first randomized controlled trial designed to look at the treatment versus placebo because the important thing here is, remember, with Rundle's curve, some of these patients will improve on their own. And so we want to make sure that therapy is dramatically better than a placebo or the underlying disease process. Mm-hmm. So we were lucky to be part of the phase three study looking at tepertumumab, which showed dramatic benefit in the treatment arm versus the placebo arm in terms of the primary and secondary endpoints. And the primary being uh, proptosis reduction of two millimeters or more. But other endpoints that are important to think about are also the clinical activity score, which is a way that uh, mostly in research, but also in the clinical setting, some of us use to kind of monitor activity of disease. In my opinion, it's not a perfect way of monitoring it. Uh, I think it has some flaws, but it can be very helpful overall in getting a sense of, of their disease activity. I think most of us would say that the best way is for trained, you know, oculoplastic specialists to look at patients. They can determine whether they're active or not because some patients are active, but complain less of pressure behind the eye and and some of the subjective things on the, quote, cast scale. So there is some subjectivity to which I don't love on that scale. But overall, in active disease, we're looking for for signs of inflammation. And so this has been shown to have a benefit in in that as well. And then the last thing, um, well, there's several other things. One is quality of life, which I think is extremely important. As we discussed before, these patients have a significant alteration in their quality of life. And so an improvement in quality of life is very important and was seen um, a significant improvement in the 
treatment arm versus placebo, and also in diplopia. And one of the things that is really exciting for me is that a lot of the interventions that we do really help patients, right? We, we do decompression surgery, their compressive optic neuropathy improves, and in some cases, we can make their diplopia better, but often the treatments are not helping that part of disease, which is one of the most disabling features of disease in a number of patients. And so there was 68% improvement or about a two-thirds improvement in patients on treatment arm in terms of their diplopia. And so I think those are, are really exciting things. You know, it's the first FDA-approved medication for thyroid-associated orbitopathy or thyroid eye disease. It was, you know, a, a really exciting study to be part of. There's other ongoing studies looking at other treatments, which we'll see what those studies show. And so I think it's a really exciting time in the field of uh, orbital oculoplastic surgery where we finally feel like we have better treatment options for these patients with this really life-altering disease. And, um, you know, I think that's really exciting. I, you know, importantly, in the phase three study and the phase two study, there are some, you know, side effects related to therapy. So I think it's really important that patients be aware of those and physicians counsel patients you know, whether it's muscle spasms um, and, and just counsel them on some of the things that were made known during these studies, such as, you know, you wouldn't want to put a patient with inflammatory bowel disease on the therapy without a really good conversation because of the risk of exacerbation of inflammatory bowel disease. Whether or not that's causal, we don't know, but certainly there are things you just have to be aware of. But really just a very, very exciting treatment for patients with, in at least the, the cases that we saw, uh, the patients noted a, a very rapid improvement in the disease. Very good. Thank you so much for your contribution to this area of treatment and certainly this field of study. Uh, this is exciting. And this, I know, has to be so meaningful for the people who have so many options now and people like you who are able to support them through their illness. So, I'm going to ask you um, now if you have any closing statement, anything that you would like to say to our listeners um, by way of closing. First of all, I'm very, very excited that you all are, are learning about this and, and that we have new treatments available for these patients. I think it's just important to remember that, you know, these the thyroid disease overall affects patients significantly. You know, if you imagine if you get diagnosed with an autoimmune disease where you feel anxious, you have palpitations, and then on top of it, your eyes start bulging and you can't see and you can't function how you used to and everybody thinks you're angry or looking at them aggressively and then it progresses and you get vision loss and double vision. I mean, it really is quite disabling for patients. And so I think it's really exciting to just raise awareness so that we all can do a better job of diagnosis in terms of helping manage these patients, and to realize that we have therapies out there that can lead to an improvement in management, hopefully, of these patients. And I think patients are very aware and excited about it. I think the more that we as providers um, can help support them, the better. I think it's a really exciting time in the treatment of these patients. Very good. I want to thank Dr. Sarah Wester for being our guest today on INS Infusion Room. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem.
Okay, when we come back from the break, we'll be speaking with Mary Alexander, the Infusion Nurses Society Chief Executive Officer. Registration for INS 2020 is now open. Investing in your future is always a safe bet, and INS is making it easier this year in Las Vegas. Not only will the educational opportunities be fresh, innovative, and fun, but the venue will offer endless attractions and discounts to help you stretch the most out of your stay. INS has put together four days of education, networking, and an exhibition hall that is filled with the best in the industry. There are special savings for INS attendees, including free tickets to the High Roller, 25% off all food and beverages at the Rio Hotel and Resort, and 10% off at the Rio's Spa. Join us at INS 2020. See you in Las Vegas. Mary, thank you so much for joining me today on our podcast. It's really a pleasure having the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks so much, Dawn. And I really appreciate having this time to um, talk about all the different programs that we have at INS for our members. Um, Let's jump right into our first topic then. Um, We're going to talk about INS recognition and scholarship. So Mary, I'd like you to talk a bit about the INS awards and recognition program Please tell our listeners what the program is and how they might be able to nominate a colleague. Sure, Dawn. The uh, awards and recognition program began last year, and it's an excellent way to recognize and honor INS members who've made significant contributions to their organizations and to the infusion specialty practice. The awards are given in the following categories. We have six categories, leadership, education, research, innovation, certification, and um, one that's called the Rising Star. INS members are asked to nominate an individual and describe how they excelled in any of these categories. And I know we have members out there that work with very deserving um, colleagues who would qualify for these uh, different awards. The call for nominations are sent via email, and I do encourage everyone to consider uh, nominating Um, a deserving member. The winners then are recognized on the INS website, through a podcast, and in a special column of Insider. I can tell you uh, in the podcast that I've done with our winners, it is so fun to get to talk about um, bedside practice with this person who's been recognized. And they are so eager to share their work, and it's it's just really an honor to talk to them. So our listeners, our members, will receive an email telling them um, that the nominations are open, but they can also go to our webpage, right? Read yes, all about can. the available um, categories and kind of see the path there on the um, INS webpage as well. Yes, they can. Yep. Okay, so next let's talk about the Gardner Foundation scholarships and the application process. Now, our listeners might be surprised to know that more than $25,000 are awarded each year. Um, Please tell us about those categories and how 
um, our members can apply. Sure, I'm happy to do that, Don. There are several categories, and members are encouraged to apply for the one that best fits their needs. We have scholarships to attend an INS meeting, to advance one's education. We have the INS Presidential Leadership Award that recognizes our leaders in the um, infusion specialty. We also have the Sharing Expertise Award for those nurses who are seeking to sit for the CRNI exam. So this is a good way to be able to get some resources as you're um, studying for the exam. We also have the Leslie Baranowski Scholarship for Professional Excellence. And not to forget our international nurses, we have the Irita Newman Scholarship. And those are for our foreign educated nurses who are living outside the U.S. Mm-hmm. So members can go to the INS website to get the application, which can be either mailed to INS or submitted electronically. So I do encourage individuals to go to the site, look at the categories that we have. There's more descriptions about what the uh, awards and scholarships are for and apply for those scholarships. I think it really is important for them to read through every single category Think about which one fits them the most and then write that single application and, and, and really get it to us. There's, there's nothing to lose by applying. Yeah, right about that. Yes. Okay. So uh, the next thing that I'd like to uh, visit with you about is membership involvement at INS. We know that INS is a professional nursing organization that really thrives on the involvement of its membership. Now, I know that there are several opportunities in 2020 that are coming up for those who are interested in becoming more involved formally. So let's talk about some of those opportunities. There's many different levels of involvement that members can take opportunity of. And first is seeking a position on the INS Board of Directors. And for the upcoming year, we will have three open positions on the INS Board of Directors, the President-Elect, the Secretary-Treasurer, and one of the Director-at-Large positions. And I just want to give a little bit of description on the time commitments that are are involved with these different positions. For the President-Elect, it's a three-year term. So your first year, you're the President-Elect. You learn about your role. The next year, you're the president and head of the board, really head of INS. And then your third year, you're the presidential advisor, still seated on the board as a voting member. Following your presidential advisor year, then you are chair of the nominations committee. So overall, it's a four-year commitment there. The secretary-treasurer role, as well as the director-at-large role, are both two-year positions, two-year terms. The call for nominations will be going out to the membership, and I do encourage individuals that are interested to please apply. Once we have the applications, the nominations committee then will set up interviews with the candidates. They can either interview them in person at the INS annual convention or via a conference call. So if you're unable to attend the meeting, it doesn't uh, preclude you from not submitting your name in as a candidate. And then once those applications are reviewed and the interviews are done, the nominations committee determines 
the slate of candidates and presents that to the board. And then the board reviews that at their October board meeting. Very good. Now, these are really important positions, but again, we would encourage um, applicants to to come forward or um, to try and connect with any of the existing board members to ask questions if they would like. Yes. Um, Another opportunity is serving on the National Council on Education. We are looking for additional members to be seated on NCOE. And for those that aren't familiar, NCOE is comprised of experts in the field of infusion nursing who are active practitioners in the specialty and who are well-versed in the clinical aspects of the profession. Their knowledge and commitment are critical to the development of INS's educational programming. And for those of you that have been to our annual meetings in uh, national academies in the past, you'll see those are the results of the work of our NCOE committee. The members work with the INS Education Department to determine professional practice gaps, plan educational sessions to address these gaps, recruit speakers, and develop and evaluate the educational sessions. Just some of the criteria for a member, the candidates must possess a bachelor's and a master's degree with one of the degrees in nursing. And while the CRNI credential is preferred, INS membership is required. Those selected must be able to attend a three-day planning meeting in the fall of 2020, and selected candidates will serve a three-year term as a member of NCOE. So, in addition to demographic information, we'll also ask the applicants to identify their main areas of expertise and describe the practice setting that they are in. We'd also like you to describe your current or prior experience planning educational activities and briefly explain why you'd like to be a member of the committee and what contributions you'd like to make. So, this is another great opportunity. It helps shape our education programs for our our members. So please think about submitting your name if this is something that you would desire to do. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mary. NCOE members usually serve a term of of three years. And um, again, I would encourage anyone who's even slightly interested to um, reach out, throw that application in there. We do plenty of training. We get you all equipped and ready to go. And we partner with you. This isn't work that you're doing all by yourself. Marlene Steinheiser, the Director of Education at INS, and myself, uh, Don Barron, we we really do partner with you. And um, it is fun work. It's good work. And it's also some fun as well. Let's move on and let's talk about INS 2020. Everyone here at INS is very excited about INS 2020. We will be in Las Vegas in May. And I just want to tell you about a couple of the highlights that you can expect when when you attend. We're going to be hosting a number of general sessions with presenters that we know that you're going to enjoy. For example, we're going to have Candy Campbell. She's going to be our closing luncheon speaker, and she does character portrayal of Florence Nightingale. So I think that will be a nice way to end the meeting. Um, Some other speakers that I believe you're going to enjoy is James Davis from the ECRI Institute. He's going to be discussing infections from peripherally inserted IV catheters. 
We've got Deborah Tony, who's going to be talking about the future of nursing and with a special emphasis on looking at diversity and inclusion, which is a very timely topic today. And lastly, everybody knows Lisa Gorski. She's the chair of the Standards of Practice Committee, and she's going to be talking about the um, infusion therapy standards of practice and how the standards are helping advance infusion therapy in all of our practices. So in addition to all the education programming that we're going to have, there are some other special events and savings for our attendees. For example, you'll get free tickets to the High Roller, and that's the world's tallest observation wheel. There'll be 25% off all food and beverage at the Rio Hotel and Resort, as well as 10% off at the Rio Spa. So in addition to the the work of the education programs, we have some time to where our attendees can enjoy themselves and, and make this a really fun experience. I do also want to point out, Don, that what's become very popular over the, in the last couple of meetings are our roundtable discussions. Mm-hmm. We have our members are leading these discussions and sharing their great work with our colleagues. So it's a great opportunity for those that are doing great work in their own organizations to share that work and and have that back and forth dialogue with the folks at their table. So I'd encourage you either to uh, attend these roundtable discussions or as well be a, a leader in sharing that information that you have. Definitely. Now, um, We do have an open application right now for the roundtable discussion leaders. Please go ahead, get that application in. We encourage you to do that. This really is a a great format to share your work and to have critical discussions about infusion nursing practice with your colleagues. Mary, we're going to be wrapping it up here soon. Um, I'm going to ask you if you have any closing thoughts for our membership before we end our podcast today. Thank you, Don. I just want to encourage our members to take advantage of all the opportunities that INS has, has to offer. Please go to the INS website where you'll be able to see what we have to offer between education programs and meetings and other kinds of resources. You have all have great work that you're doing in your own organizations. And I think it's a, a great way to really advance our specialty as we're sharing with others. So any involvement that you have, we, we welcome we welcome that. So thank you. And thank you, Mary. It's always such a pleasure talking with you. We're happy you could join the podcast today. Thanks, Don. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from Dear Ivy, a clinical nurse specialist who's going to answer your clinical infusion questions. Stay tuned. Dear Ivy, why do we have to cleanse the needleless connector between each separate syringe access when administering medication 
in a vascular access device using the sash technique. My nurse colleagues and I hold the needleless connector in such a way that it does not touch anything as we pick up each syringe and attach and detach it throughout the process. It seems so cumbersome to stop the process, re-cleanse the needleless connector that we believe has been maintained in an aseptic condition before attaching the next syringe. Are you certain that we must continue to cleanse the needleless connector between each access? Signed, too many scrub the hubs for sash. Well, Dear Ivy appreciates this question from our colleague, Too Many Scrub the Hubs. And this isn't the first time that INS has addressed this question. So Dear Ivy is going to direct us to Infusion Therapy Standards of Practice Standard 34 on needleless connectors. Every infusion clinician must recognize that needleless connectors are potential sites for interluminal microbial contamination, which requires careful adherence to infection prevention practices. According to Standard 34, clinicians must perform a vigorous mechanical scrub for manual disinfection of the needleless connector prior to each vascular access device access and allow it to dry. And this pertains to medication administration using the SASH technique as well. Now, understanding the risk for contamination of the needleless connector and how contamination can happen so easily is essential. Contamination occurs without our notice, oftentimes. Uh, sometimes we're inadvertently touching the needleless connector with a gloved finger, or sometimes we even have the syringe slide off the connector diaphragm during an access attempt. It does happen. It can happen. It can happen without our notice. At this time, there is no new evidence to suggest that we should eliminate the needleless connector cleanse required between each syringe access. So Dear Ivy suggests that you continue adherence to the INS standards of practice. Your patients are counting on it. Thank you for your question. This concludes this episode of INS Infusion Room, a podcast of the Infusion Nurses Society. We welcome your comments. You can reach us at infusionroom at ins1.org. That's infusionroom at ins1.org. Thank you for listening.